Okay, so I guess we can get started. So, I enjoyed my weekend. Hope you enjoyed your weekend. I'll have the test on Friday. I told you if it was going to turn 80 and sunny that we'd have the test on Friday and we'll have the test on Friday. So, I'm sure you've all been anxiously sitting around wanting to know what the answer to the question is. And the question we left with last time was, how are the, right, how do those C regions and those V regions come together to make one polypeptide, right? How are we going to be able to have the variability in one portion of the molecule and the consistency in the other portion of the molecule or of the protein, and how is that going to come together? We talked about the fact that Tonegawa, across the street at MIT in 1974, confirmed the Dwyer and Bennett hypothesis. Okay? It was going to take Tonegawa another two years. He had to wait for technology to catch up. Right? Again, we talked about this before. Right? We think that there are things in the sky that capture light and don't let light escape. We're going to call them black holes, but okay. What proof do you have for black holes? Well, we don't have proof yet, but we'll make a satellite one day and we'll go up and we'll find our proof. And years later, they found their proof. So we have some black holes. So what we needed to have happen here is we needed restriction endonucleases to be able to be, not to be able to be discovered, but they were discovered and restriction endonucleases are able to cut DNA in precise sequences to have the same broken, the same digested DNA at your disposal experiment after experiment after experiment. So in 1974, all Tonegawa could do was to break apart DNA with just chemicals. He chemically denatured the DNA, and that didn't really give him the fine-tuning that he needed to be able to see what was going on in that gene. Right? We're going to call it a gene right now, right? One well, now we're talking about uh, two genes, one polypeptide. So he needed his restriction endonucleases to be able to cut up the DNA. So he has those same cDNA probes we were talking about from his 1974 experiments. And those probes were going to give him to the entire protein coding region, the variable region and the constant region. And it was also, because he's able to, to break it apart, he has the same, not the same mRNA, but another mRNA that's only the constant region. He now has his, his restriction in the nucleases. So what he's going to do now is he's going to take germline DNA, and his germline DNA means it's just normal DNA, right, from a 13-day-old mouse embryo. So that's just like DNA from a fibroblast, DNA from anything except the B cell. And he's also going to take DNA from a plasma cytoma, right? We, before we had talked about plasma plasma cytomas being a, uh, a tumor of B cells in the mouse. So he has normal mouse DNA, just fibroblast from, you know, any other organ, and he has specific B cell DNA. So he digests this all, he starts to do his experiments, and what he found was, right, he found the key thing that needed to take place. And that key thing that needed to take place was he found rearrangement of the DNA in the B cell. B cell DNA is not like any other DNA in the entire body. Right? And I'll further go to suggest that T cell DNA is like no other DNA inside the body. Right? So, what did his experiment look like? Right? What did he come to find out and what 
does it look like? So what does he do? Here's his myeloma. Here's his B-cell tumor. Here's his embryonic cell DNA. He gets the DNA. He now has the step of restriction endonucleases, so he has the ability to cut this up into very fine detail and to be able to get the same cuts time after time after time after time. He takes his, his mRNAs right to, to the full length and into the constant region, and he hybridizes them against this DNA from the myeloma cell or the embryonic cell. Right? And what does he come to find out? When he looks at embryonic DNA, right, as you would sort of expect, and I'm just sort of making this up, right? So here's the constant region, and here's the variable region. And that's what you would expect to find, right? Somewhere out there, you have the constant region and the variable region. But when he looks at the DNA that comes from the B cell, now the constant region and the variable region are right next to each other. Right? Here they're on different pieces of DNA, for example. And right now, the rearrangement has taken place, so now they're right next to each other. Right? The DNA has rearranged. It's different than the germline DNA. So in the embryonic DNA, here's a restriction endonuclease cut here. Here's a restriction endonuclease cut here. Here's one here. When this restriction endonuclease breaks apart this embryonic DNA, the variable region and the constant region, the variable region and the constant region are in two separate places. A rearrangement has taken place. Here's the same restriction in the nuclease cut, right? And here's the same restriction in the nuclease cut here. Only now, the variable region and the constant region are right next to each other. One experiment, he gets the Nobel Prize for doing that. Right? Dogma was one gene one polypeptide. Now he's saying, eh, I got two genes and I got one polypeptide. Right? Still not sure how it's happening or what's taking place, but now he has the answer right, that has been evading him and Dwyer and Bennett for at least a decade. Variable region and constant region separated across the expansive DNA. And now they've rearranged. They've come together. So the available region is right next to the constant region. So now if we have a whole bunch of available regions on a couple of constant regions, we need to have some sort of genetic mechanism to allow this to take place, right? To allow these two things to come right next to each other. And that's what's going to happen for the next couple of years, right? It's going to be able to take place. So what's going to happen now is... Remember before, when we needed information about the immunoglobulin molecule, right? We started sequencing the protein, right? We found the variable region, right? And we found, right, we had this, right? This picture was up for a long time in the first third of the course, right? And we were finding that this is maybe IgG, this is maybe IgM. So now we're going to do the same thing. Only now, instead of sequencing proteins, hundreds and hundreds of proteins, now we're going to sequence a whole bunch of DNA. And we're sequencing, right, DNA, doesn't matter what the antigen is, doesn't matter, you know, what the response was. We're looking at mouse DNA. Some people are probably doing it in human DNA as well. But we're just sequencing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of B-cell cell DNAs. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of DNA. DNA from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of B cells, right? We come to find out it's a very complex organization, as you would expect, right? Because we're getting all this information. 
what they find is, let me just sort of shut the whole thing over here, three multi-gene unlinked families. And each of these families contains several coding sequences in the DNA, right? And they're going to call them gene segments. They're not going to call them genes, because they're not really genes, right? So they're gene segments. So if we look at light chain, right, we have uh, light chain DNA, we have kappa chain, light chain DNA, and then we have all the heavy chain. They're on individual chromosomes, 22, 2, and 14 in the human, and 16, 6, and 12 in the mouse, right? So these are synthetic organization where this chromosome is very similar to this chromosome, and this chromosome is similar to this chromosome, so we have some sort of evolutionary component taking place here. So we have all this information, we have all these gene segments spread out over Right? Hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of base pairs of DNA and on multiple chromosomes. So it's even more complex now, right? You're thinking, well, if they're on the same chromosome, you know, we got to have something to move them around, right? We're going to get rid of DNA and move them around. But now we're saying, no, we're going to take some information from one chromosome and information from another chromosome. We're going to sort of bring them together, right? We may do that in the, in the ribosome to bring the light chain together with the heavy chain. But it's this very, very complex organization that people were starting to find. Okay? So, we're sequencing, and we're sequencing, and we're sequencing DNA, and what we're coming to find are things that we expected to find, and a whole lot of things that we didn't expect to find. So, we have these variable gene segments, right? So they're the V regions, and Dwyer and Bennett and Tonegawa said that there were a whole bunch of these V gene segments. And here are those constant genes, or now we know them as constant gene segments. So, as predicted, we'd have, we'd have lots of these, we'd have a couple of those, right? We've talked about that for a couple of times now. They also come to find what are called joining gene segments, right? Because we're sequencing the same area, those same chromosome locations in all these different B-cell DNA uh, uh, samples that we have, that's a good one, right? So now we find something we didn't expect to find. We have these what are called J gene segments. Okay. We have leader gene segments. And leader gene segments, they're associated with the variable gene segments. And they basically guide the heavy chain or the light chain through the endoplasmic reticulum, right? Once this gets off the ribosome, the, the, the leader gene segments guide it right into the endoplasmic reticulum. Not so sort of strange to hear now, because we know a lot of proteins do that now, but back in when this was first coming around, this is the beginning of sort of molecular biology exploration. We didn't know a lot about leader gene segments. We thought that this had only something to do with immunoglobulin genes, but it doesn't, right? All sorts of proteins that have to get to the endoplasmic reticulum, that's how they're trafficked through the, the cytoplasm, right? So they're going to make it that way. And then we also found what are called diversity gene segments. And these D gene segments are only found associated with heavy chains. So we had the variable region and a constant. We sort of got that. Leader gene segments, big deal. A lot of proteins have that. 
It's these new sort of ones, the joining gene segments and these diversity gene segments that people didn't expect to find. So the other thing we come to find out is that we need a variable gene segment and a joining gene segment to be able to make a light chain. And then we need a variable gene segment, a diversity gene segment, and a joining gene segment to be able to make a heavy chain. All right. So, let's just think about this. So if we look at this, if we look at the protein, We knew that we had a variable gene segment. I mean, we knew we had a variable region and a constant region. So that's the protein. Now, right, if we're looking at DNA or, or eventually RNA, what are we saying? Same thing, only now we have, so this is a light chain. So now, the V and the J are going to come together, and that's going to be the variable sequence of the, of the protein. And then if we look at heavy chain, right, we got the same thing. We got a constant region, only now we got a V, a D, and a J. And that's going to make the variable region of the protein itself. Okay? So, Two genes, well, now it's saying three genes, one polypeptide. He was saying four genes, one polypeptide, right, if, you if we want to use this sort of analogy. But again, remember, these are small little gene segments. So a V and a J have to come together with a constant region, so here's the rearrangement that needs to take place to make a light chain protein with the variable region and the constant region. And we need a V, a D, and a J to make the heavy chain DNA to be able to make Right? that heavy chain protein itself. So all these little pieces got to all come together. Right? So we're still, you know, we're still sort of looking at this, and we're still sequencing, and we're still sequencing, and when we come to see right, things that are making up, in terms of lambda chain, in terms of kappa chain, if we look at the light chains first, so there's a bunch of Vs, right? there's a, a small number of constant gene segments, in the human, right? So really, a whole bunch of V's, because we know the V and the J have to come together to make a light chain. So we got a bunch of variable regions, not a lot of constant regions. In the mouse, right, the same sort of, right, seven to four, one of them's a pseudogene. It looks like a real gene, but it doesn't function. So again, more V's, a couple of J's. If we look at kappa, right, more V and J have to come together to make the variable region with a constant region. So, a whole bunch of V's, so we got 45 or so of these little V gene and J gene segments. There's only one constant region in kappa, so it's a lot easier to sort of deal with. And the same sort of idea in the mouse, right? A whole bunch of more V's to only one C. So, if we look at this, right, in a picture, so let's look at kappa first, or kappa as our model, because we only have one constant region gene, right? So, on the DNA, piece of DNA itself, here's a variable region, right, V kappa 1, V kappa 2, dot, dot, dot means that they're all right next to each other, 
right? That's what the dot, dot, dot means. And here's the kappa region N, right? So 1 to N, and N is about 85. So there's just one after another just sitting there on the DNA. These little V gene segments just spread right along the DNA. Here's the leader gene segment right here, right? On the V, so that when this comes off the ribosome, right, this protein is going to have these leader gene amino acids. Proteins are going to recognize those amino acids as being transport uh, sort of information, and they're going to take this light chain into the endoplasmic reticulum. Right? So the same thing, they're just sort of sitting there, sitting there, right? A, an expansive DNA, and here are the J gene segments, some more DNA, and there's the kappa gene. I mean, there's the kappa constant region right there. Same idea up here, right? Here's the verberine, so on this is a little more complicated. The V's and the J's, and the, right? We got sort of constant regions interdispersed. We have a long, right? This means that there's a long stretch of DNA, and now we're back to more variable gene segments and J gene segments and constant regions, right? So it basically, right, looks the same way. We got a bunch of V's, a bunch of J's, and a bunch of C's. If we're looking at the heavy chain, only a certain small amount of constant region genes, right? We know we have a mu, a delta, an epsilon, uh, an alpha. We got a gamma 1, a gamma 2, a gamma 3, right? So there's only a small amount of constant genes. We got a whole bunch, right, if we bring the V and the J and now the D. Because the VDJ, these gene segments have to sort of come together, right, to make the heavy chain. So we have a whole bunch of Vs, a small, a whole bunch of variable areas, a small amount of constant regions. And in the mouse, it's the same way, right? There's a lot, a lot, a lot of V gene segments in the mouse. But again, if you look at the heavy chain DNA, if you look in the human, right, here is the DNA. Again, they're right next to each other from VH1 to, hey, VH1? From VH1 to VHN, so it's about 134 of them. They're the leader gene segments associated with the variable region, so when this protein is made, we have that information to bring it to the endoplasmic reticulum. We got a little bit of a break in the DNA. Here are the D gene segments right next to each other. Right? In the, in the human, we got 25. In the mouse, we have about 13, so they're sitting right next to each other. A space, here are the J gene segments, right? Sort of, sort of sitting right there. And here are all the constant regions, right? So here's constant region for alpha, for epsilon, for gamma 2A, gamma 2B, gamma 1, gamma 3, delta, and alpha. Right? So they're all just sitting out there. Right? They're just sitting out there. These little pieces are sitting out there. And what we need to do now is we need to figure out how this rearrangement is going to be able to take place. Right? How are we going to get this constant region right, next to this J, next to this V? Right? We've got to bring that V next to the J and bring it right next to the C to make a light chain to be able to make that light chain, to make the protein of that light chain. So, right, we need this piece, we need this piece, and then we need that piece. That's the rearrangement, right? That's the information that Tonegawa found. And now we have to come to some sort of mechanism for how this is going to take place. So, the first thing we know is that all these rearrangements appear to occur at random. So that means one of two things is taking place. Either it really is occurring at random, or it's so complex 
that we can't figure out what the, right, what the, what, what the guiding sort of underlying information is. So we are assuming that all this is happening at random. And it's going to happen at random, and that's going to allow us right, to generate lots and lots and lots and lots of an different antibody molecules, right? Because we're going to take a V and a J, and the next time, right, the B cell right next to us is going to be a different V and a J, and the B cell right next to that B cell is going to be a different V and a J, and the B cell next to that B cell is going to be a different V and a J. So this appears to be happening at random, okay? The other thing is that even though it's happening at random, it is happening in this very ordered sequence during specific points of B cell development. So if you're looking at what is eventually going to be that mature B cell as it leaves the bone marrow, it means those immature precursors that are dividing and differentiating inside the bone marrow Right? At particular times during their life span, right, from very immature B cells to mature B cells before they leave the bone marrow, right, that we're getting these specific points of this ordered sequence. So at the end of the process, each B cell is going to contain a single functional unique antibody molecule. When that B cell, when all those B cells come pouring out of the bone marrow, they're all different. And they're all different in that they all have a unique antigen receptor on the cell surface. They all have that unique IgM monomer that is the antigen receptor on the surface of the B cell. So every B cell is different because every immunoglobulin molecule is going to be different. Right? And at the end of Friday, Right, I hope I'm going to give you an information, enough information to assure you that that's what's taking place. So, we're sitting inside the bone marrow, we're a B cell, and our DNA is now starting to rearrange. So, the V is going to join to a J, a V gene segment is going to join to a J gene segment, and then that piece, this V in the J, so we're going to get this rearrangement, and then we're going to get this rearrangement, right? So we're going to bring a particular V next to a particular J, and then it's going to come next to that constant region, right? If this is kappa, it's easy to sort of figure out, right? Because there's only one constant region in a kappa light chain. So the constant region and the V and the J are going to come right next to each other. And a similar sort of mechanism is going to take place inside the heavy chain, right? As we're rearranging our DNA, a D is going to join to the J, and then that's going to join, right? Then that DJ is going to join to the V, and then the constant region is going to be there, right? So the D is going to join to the J, and then this is going to join to, the, the, to a, an, an individual V gene segment, and then a particular constant region. And when this first happens, that constant region is going to be mu. We said this before, IgM is the first immunoglobulins manufactured, right? We said that when we talked about the, the characteristics of the individual classes of the immunoglobulin molecules, that IgM is always the first one. So in this B cell development that's inside the bone marrow, right, when they leave the bone marrow, 
it's IgM or IgD, right? It's either the mu heavy chain or the delta. We said IgD, we'll talk about IgD when we talk about what's happening in those B cells inside the bone marrow. But in general, right, they all have mu, they're all IgM, and they're all IgM, right? Because they need to have that monomeric IgM on their cell surface, and that is the antigen receptor, right? And this is that monomeric IgM molecule. So that's why it's got to be a mu heavy chain, because it's they're making IgM. So picture is worth a thousand words. What do we got going on here? So let's look at kappa. Right? So here's kappa light chain. So in that developing B cell, in that differentiating B cell, something takes place where this piece is ripped off, it's joined to this piece, right, in this particular B cell, right? In this B cell, we're taking this V, this J, and we only have one constant region. So the rearranged kappa DNA now looks like this, right? Here's V1, V2, V3, B, blah, blah, blah. And, we, and this is V, this is V kappa 1, and right here it's, we're going to have V kappa 22, because here's V kappa 23, right? And here's J1, 2, and here's J3. Right, so they come together. That's what the new DNA looks like. Here's the RNA transcript. Right? So we do have things, right? if you wanted to think about this as, being the in, uh, as this as being the exon, we do have these things, right? this, this intervening DNA. We've got to get rid of it. And Well, it's intervening RNA now. Right? And turn this into messenger RNA. So this looks like a regular old messenger RNA right now, right? because we got rid of they're not really exons and introns, but we got rid of what appear, right, these, we could use these as introns. We bring it together for the mRNA. This mRNA now goes out onto that and gets translated into protein on the ribosome. So here is our leader gene segment. So we're in the cytoplasm, right? Chaperone proteins or transport proteins recognize this, bring it to the ER. This is later going to be cut off, and when the process is all done, there's our protein molecule. So this is what's happening in this B cell. We got lots and lots of B cells in the bone marrow. We got billions of B cells. So in the B cell right next door, we're taking this and we're taking this. And the B cell next to that, we're taking this and we're taking this. And the B cell next to that one, we're taking this one and we're taking this one. And the other B cell, right, you get the idea. We're just sort of removing these chunks and bringing them together. And every time we do that, if we take this one and this one, there's going to be a new immunoglobulin molecule, right? It's going to be a new, well, not immunoglobulin molecule, it's going to be a different light chain. Right? It's going to be a totally different light chain. And if we look at heavy chains, same thing's happening in heavy chains, only now we got, we got lots of things we've got to think about here. So, same way, we're going to rip off this D, we're going to rip off this J. DJ needs to recombine. And then once that recombined DJ is there, we've got to go up here, we've got to take this variable region in this picture. Right? Those get brought next to each other, those get rearranged. Here's our new heavy chain. Right? This is what our DNA looks like, our heavy chain DNA inside this particular B cell. Right? We sort of chop all of this up over here. We're either going to make IgM or IgD. Right? 
we translate it, leader gene sequence, we bring it to the endoplasmic reticulum, we're going to bring either this mu heavy chain or this delta heavy chain, and inside the endoplasmic reticulum, right, we're going to have chaperones, and that's where we're going to bring that light chain that we just made, right next to that heavy chain that we just made, we're going to fold it all up, we're going to staple it all together with disulfide bonds, and we're going to put it on the surface as an antigen receptor. And again, in the B cell next to this B cell, we're taking this one and this one, and the next B cell, we're taking this one and this one, and the next B cell, we're taking this one and this one, right? And we rearrange, and this B cell, we took this, and the next B cell, we're taking VH36, and the next one, we're taking VH whatever, right? Blah, blah, blah. Here's our new DNA. Right? Here's our new transcript, our messenger, our protein. This, right, this basically rocked the world of everybody who thought one gene, one polypeptide. Think about it, if this was a gene, right, we would just be taking this piece, we would take out all these introns, the exons would be right next to each other, and then we'd have a protein molecule. We're doing the same thing, only now we have a step in front of it where we're bringing all this together, we're ripping all these little pieces together. Remember, we don't have enough DNA in our bodies for all those billions and billions of different immunoglobulin molecules that we could potentially have in our B cells as those B cells are leaving the bone marrow. So we need a different way to make all those different billions and billions of things. Take a whole bunch of marbles, put them into a jar, just reach in and just grab a random marble, put it together, you got a new marble combination. Reach in again, you got another new marble combination. Reach in again, you got another new marble, different sort of coming together. We can make lots and lots and lots of different marbles that way, starting with this very small amount of raw material. Right? All these things are here in our DNA, just sitting there. We got this raw material. And now we're just going to come up, rip them, and bring them together to start making a whole bunch. And by a whole bunch, I'm talking billions and billions of different unique immunoglobulin molecules and billions and billions of unique B cells because they have these unique molecules on their cell surfaces. All right? So... What else do we know from looking at these things? What do we know about the rearrangements that are taking place? Well, what we know is, right, when we talked about those CDR regions, complement determining regions, if we look at CDR1 and CDR2, CDR1 and CDR2 are encoded by those V-gene segments. So if you look at, right, if we're sort of looking at the mRNA itself, this is where CDR1 is, this is where CDR2 is, right? So if you look at the protein, Right? CDR1 and CDR2 are going to sit out here, but right? CDR3 itself is encoded where the V and the J, or the V, the D and the J rearrangement takes place. So these are going to make the CDR region the most diverse of the CDR regions. Because right? CDR1 and CDR2 are already encoded in right, that V gene segment. And this 
example here, we're looking at a heavy chain, right? So here they're coming together in the V, the D, and the J. If it was a light chain, it would only be in the V and the J region. So that's where CDR3 is, all right? So remember, right, inside that heavy chain or that light chain, we had the three CDRs, and we're saying CDR3, it doesn't matter which one is CDR3, that's the most Right? That's the most diverse of the CDRs because we have the most potential here for differences in amino acids. Okay. So, what do we know about the mechanism of what's taken place? Well, we kind of know a lot, but there's a lot we don't know. The first thing we know is Right? that the joining of these gene segments is not always very neat. Right? It's basically very sloppy. So, when we're looking at this picture right here, right, and again, nothing against the artist, this is the way you, know, you have to be able to present this, but right up here when we're looking at this, right, let's look at this rearrangement right here. Right? This rearrangement right here, it looks very nice. You know, you go in with a razor blade or you go in with your scissors, right? If you knew, when you're in first grade or second grade, right, you had to cut out, make nice shapes. So here we're going in with this nice razor blade and we're taking this big old green block and this big old yellow block. Right? Let's just for one second remember right, that our DNA doesn't have a bunch of green blocks and red blocks and yellow blocks inside, right? And when we're looking at this, even though we're looking at red blocks and dotted lines and green blocks, what we're looking at here is, right, CTGCDGCTGCG, I'm just sort of making this up, right? CT, I don't know my particular DNA uh, <laughs> sequence, right? But this is a whole bunch of C's and G's and T's and A's, right? It's just that when we present it like this, we need a visual representation of that. Because if we tried to make right, this B, C, T, C, G, C, right, it would have to be from here to, right, to Quincy right, to be able to sort of fit it on the, on the piece of paper that we needed to look at. Right? So, so again, this is sort of an artist's rendering of what's taking place, but this is just DNA sequences. Right? They're either A's and T's or G's and C's. But coming back, right, we take this and we cut it out nice and we cut it out nice. We're using a nice little razor blade, but that's not what the way it's happening. We're actually making these cuts with a chainsaw. Right? And we're making these cuts with a chainsaw and we've had a couple of cocktails during the day. Right? So we're sort of going up there and we're making the cuts. Right? So this, the cutting that's taking place here is pretty sloppy. Right? So when these come together, Right? When these GCTs, GC, blah, 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 right, all come together and we're going to translate that into proteins, right? we're going to get a whole lot of different codons in here, different triplets in here, right? And that's going to generate a whole lot of diversity. Because if this one starts with an A and we come in with a cut and we take the T and the A that's next to that A, right? that A is always going to be there in all the DNA. If we take that cut from here and we take that cut from here and we bring them together, the next time right, we're going to take the T next to that A and the next time we're going to take the C next to that T and we're going to bring them all together. That's generating diversity. That's going to generate down here at the end of the day different amino acids in there and those different amino acids right, are going to allow all sort of right, combinations to be able to take place of those CDR1s, CDR2s and CDR3s 
right? All we're really looking at when we're generating that diversity in there, right? If this is CDR1, right? So maybe it sits like that. If this perhaps was a, right? Was a, was a glycine and we turn that into a leucine, right? Maybe the next time it looks like that. And if this leucine was a phenylalanine, maybe the next time it looks like that. And if this one was, and then maybe the next time it looks like that, right? We're generating all that different information in the pocket there. So when it comes into contact with that epitope, it's going to be able to recognize it and be able to bind better. Right? So this isn't as you know, sort of nice as it looks. We're up there and it's very sloppy, right? And that's going to generate the diversity that we need, right? We need to generate billions and billions and billions of different antibody molecules. The other thing we can find out if we keep sequencing and we start looking, right, the same way when we had a whole bunch of different protein sequences, we could see that, you know, we had like a gamma 1 and a gamma 2. We could see sort of subsequence information inside the sequences. As we start looking at all that DNA information, we can start to see more and more information inside there. And what we come to find out is, right, that there are conserved DNA sequences that flank the V, the D, and the J genes. So when you look at, right, again, when we look at those blocks of what's taking place over here, there is information encoded here and here and here and here and here and, here and all the way and here and here and here and here that are basically right, the addresses of this DNA. Right? They're called recombination signal sequences. And this is the information inside the DNA that the enzymes that are responsible for this sort of right, cutting out the information, that's how they know where to go. Right? So when you look at this DNA, when you look at this conserved DNA, what you're going to find out right, is that each of these recombination signal sequences contains a palindromic heptamer, a conserved AT-rich nonomer region, and that's separated by either a 12 or a 23 base pair spacer. Yike, what the heck does this mean? All right, so what's a heptamer? How many? Seven. Heptamer is seven. What's a nonomer? A nine. What's a palindrome? All right, palindrome is mom. Well, people tell me that a palindrome has to be at least four letters, right? So a Toyota, right, is a palindrome, right? The longest one that I heard was a man, a plan, a canal, Panama. If you turn it all around and it says the same thing, a man, a plan, a canal, Panama, right? The same idea. So let's put this into, right, again, <laughs> so we can start to look at it. So here's our heptamer. Here's our right, AT-rich nonomer. That's pretty easy to see. We got a whole bunch of A's and a whole bunch of T's right, in both a two-turn recombination signal sequence, because here's just 23 base pairs of DNA. Right? It's a whole bunch of other C's or G's or T's or A's. And then if we look at the one-turn recombination signal sequence, here's 12 base pairs. Here's our AT-rich nonomer again. Right? So here's our heptamer. 
right? G, T, G, A, C, T, T, C, right? So it goes back and forth. And the same thing over here, right? So that's a palindrome right in there as well. So each area surrounding the V gene segments, the J gene segments, and the D gene segments, you have these sitting right there. So that's how the enzymes know where to come and where to cut. Right? These are the addresses on the DNA right, that we are able to see. So here's one and here's one. How do you tell this V from this J? It's easy. Here's a recombination signal sequence here. Here's a recombination signal sequence here in the lambda chain. In the kappa chain, same thing. Right? We'll talk about why the colors are different in a second. And then here in the heavy chain, the same exact thing. You want a D, you're looking for recombination signal sequences on either side. You want a V, you're looking for this recombination signal sequence 3 prime. And you're looking for this particular recombination signal sequence 5 prime of that J gene segment. Okay? So, the V gene segment has a one-turn recombination signal sequence. The J segment has a two-turn recombination signal sequence if we're looking at kappa, and it's reverse if we're looking at lambda, right? So that's why in this picture, right, these are different colors, right? Because this one is here, this one here is lambda, it's over here in kappa, and this one's over here in lambda, and this one's over here in kappa. So we're, we're easily be able to tell a V from a J. So we, we grab hold here, we grab hold here, we cut, we bring them together. That's the V and the J. Okay. The V and the J gene segment, a two-turn recombination sequence, while the D has a one-turn recombinational single sequence if you're looking at the heavy chain. Right. So, it's pretty straightforward. Here's our D, flanked by the same. Here's our V, here's our J in different positions. We have the other recombination signal sequence. So, whatever enzyme, we assume it's an enzyme, is in here, that enzyme's able to recognize it, it sees it, it makes the cut. We have the one-turn, two-turn rule. A one-turn recombination signal sequence is only going to join with a two-turn recombination signal sequence. Right? So that's how we're going to keep track of bringing our V's next to our J's or bringing our D next to our J or next to my V because they're only going to come that way. We now have a pretty good idea about the enzymes that are responsible for it. We know that we have a new enzyme that's been found, right? They're the ones that are going to be able to recognize the recombination signal sequence, and they're the ones that are going to be able to make the cut or be a part of a protein complex that can make the cut. And we have two recombination activating genes. They're called RAG1 and RAG2. They only appear right, in B cells and T cells. And they are specifically involved with that recognition and this DNA rearrangement. So even though we don't have, right, we sort of blew up our one gene, one polypeptide, we do have this very specific machinery that's only involved with this recombination event taking place. If you look any other place in the animal kingdom, you don't find anything else, well, 
you kind of do, so I'm kind of lying a little bit. You do find proteins that sort of look like the RAG genes in certain bacteria. Certain bacteria can also rearrange, right? So if you're looking at bacterial plasmids, right, and you're looking at things like antibiotic resistance, and we're taking genes and we're doing lateral gene transfers and things like that. So this kind of mechanism appears to be in bacteria. There's no other place in the animal kingdom besides bacteria and lymphocytes that you find anything that even looks like a RAG gene. So there's a little bit of evolutionary continuity going on there, right? Why it's only found in these two places and it's part of the, right, the eukaryotic immune system, I will even go a step further and say the mammalian immune system, I will go a step further and say, right, sort of the higher vertebrate immune system. Why weren't these recombination activating genes used anyplace else in nature over the course of the, you know, several billions of years that they've been on the planet? Your guess is as good as mine. Right? So, what do we know about these RAG genes? Well, what we know is, right, they're involved mainly in that first phase of VJ or VDJ recombination. We know that the RAG1 gene comes in, it binds to the nonomer, and that's going to be able to be sort of this area where RAG2 is going to be able to come in. RAG2 makes contact with the heptamer. It forms together with a whole bunch of other proteins, and we'll talk about the other proteins that need to take place there on Friday. And we get this stable complex, right, of, of these RAG genes and DNA. So we've sort of anchored onto the DNA with the RAG genes. In the next step, this complex is going to be able to cut the DNA. It sort of nicks the five prime end of that recombination signal sequence by the heptamer. It's going to leave this little, right, hanging terminus on the coding side and the five prime phosphate on the signaling side. So we got to basically take care of those to be able to bring the DNA to ligate the, D the, to ligate the DNA back together. And then eventually that RAG proteins convert that nick into a flush double-strand break, right? Because we need to be able to bring that DNA together, right? We get this little hairpin, codes the end, and a five prime, right, phosphorylated blunt end. So what we're going to do is, right, we're going to take, right, this individual J and that individual V, right, and we're going to have a lot of overhanging DNA here. We're going to get rid of all that overhanging DNA so that we can make this nice cut, this nice area that's going to basically come together so the V and the J can be right next to each other. So that's why it doesn't really matter how sort of many nucleotides to one side or the other we come in when we make that cut with our chainsaw because at the end of the day it's going to be all tidied up so we get right, a blunt end on this side, a blunt end on this side, and we bring that V and the J together. And we're basically going to do based a, a, a straightforward ligation reaction right here, right? Once all the fancy cuts take place and once all the fancy recognition takes place, then we're just down to regular DNA maintenance, right? When we need to, right, separate out proteins and make RNA, we're making these cuts, we're bringing DNA back together, we're doing all this stuff, all that is going to be carried out by the other enzymes inside the cell, right, that are involved in normal sort of DNA maintenance, but it's those RAG genes that are going to get the specificity to be able to go up, 
right, and grab onto the V and grab onto the J, make the cuts, and then bring them right next to each other. So that's what's going on with these recombination activating genes. And if we're looking, right, we have all those other proteins. So we have, right, DNA binding molecules, right, we have kinases, we have ligases, right, we have TDT, terminal deoxynucleotidyl transferase, that's involved with making blunt ends. We have a nuclease, this nuclease artemis is what's going to come in and make the cuts itself, guided by the RAG proteins. Right, so for sort of looking at what's taking place, right, this is sort of normal DNA repair. So once the RAG genes were there and they're not there anymore, right, this is just normal DNA repair, right? Artemis is going to be there to help cut it up. We're going to have all these other enzymes. Ligase is going to be able to come in. This complex falls away, and there's our new piece of DNA, right? So the, all that information is going to be there as it comes along. The other part that's kind of cool about this thing is, right, we're going to bring these RAG genes together, right, so we're going to bring them together in here, and this is an experiment we're looking at right here, so figure in, in these sort of pictures, here's RAG1 and RAG2 right next to each other, here's RAG1 and RAG2 right next to each other, so all this intervening DNA is now gone, right, we bring them right next to each other, right, let me go back to this, because right, this is kind of important. Right? All this intervening DNA in here is now gone. All this intervening DNA, right, because the regs come together and they bring this V next to this D, all this intervening DNA is gone. So this B cell will never, ever, ever, well, I don't want to say that because in science things can take place, so I'll say never, right, can never make a different antibody molecule. So this B cell is always going to be able to make this antibody molecule, right? So all this intervening DNA is not there anymore. So this B cell is there, this B cell has this information, and all of the B cell, that B cell, as long as it lives for the rest of its life, let me go back to, the, whoa, let me go back to this, right? For the rest of its life, is going to make this particular antibody molecule. Because all that intervening DNA inside the light chain is cut out, all that intervening DNA inside the heavy chain is cut out. When those rearrangements have now taken place, and that V and that J is right next to it again in that new piece of DNA, right? It's a totally new piece of DNA. All of that other DNA is gone. So that B cell is programmed for the rest of its life to make that particular antibody molecule. Right? And we'll talk about the mechanisms, how this is going to take place on Friday. And I'll also have the tests. No, not this week. It was a test week.